can get started this morning. Uh, first order of business is when we have silent prayer. Pray for my throat because it is scratchy. And I've been doing everything I can do to try and get it unscratchy. So if you see me drinking more coffee along the way, then uh, there's a reason for that. But the uh, Lord usually gets me through this thing, these things. So let's just, uh, let's just start like it's going to work and go from there. Let's just take a few moments. If you would open your Bibles to Jude, okay, the book of Jude. It's just the one just before the book of Revelation, and uh, it's really a neat little book, and so we're going to go through that a verse at a time. Uh, Before we begin, though, let's just take a moment for prayer and get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, we're so blessed and honored and privileged just uh, to be called your kids, to be able to assemble still in a free country where we can open up your word without fear of government retribution at this point. And Father, we thank you for just the blessings you've poured out upon us, most of all in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that today as we open up your word that you would uh, enlighten and encourage and nurture our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been looking at a systematic study of living in the last days, okay? How then should we live? We've identified that it is the last days, and so we ask, well, what do we do? Because just to have the knowledge of the last days and not know what to do in it is really just, just incomplete, incomplete at the best. Now, the first thing we looked at was the Olivet Discourse, and that's actually the revelation that we that we have, the revelation of the uh, fact that we're in the last days, what to look for, what are the birth pangs. We put together a lot of passages on that because that lays out the plan of God. You look at the revelation, you find God's plan. And the next thing we looked at was the rich of the last days, found in James 5. One of the things about the last days that the rich people are going to be basically controlling the world, and that's that's what we see going on right now. That's James 5. The third thing we looked at was the rebellious people, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last time, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, disobedient to parents, all of those things. And we find at the end of that chapter, all scriptures God breathed. So we also know that in the last days, the inspiration of the Bible is going to be one of the most attacked things on the planet, and that has proven to be the case. And uh, one thing about the devil is he doesn't care about speaking truth. He looks to twist and distort. That's the way he does it. So uh, there's any number of things that he uses that... Says, you know, like the Catholic Church changed all the scriptures and all this, that, and the other, which is just not true. The scriptures were settled in the first century for the New Testament, and the accuracy of the manuscripts is is amazing. It's such a high level of confidence that we have in what's actually there that we can we can look to the scripture and find out how should we live, which is what we're doing. The rewards for standing firm, the rewards for holding on, the rewards for uh, being a light in the middle of the darkness is found in 2 Timothy 4. And Paul is talking about that. He said, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. 
And he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. Okay, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not me only, but all who have loved his appearing. So this is what we're looking for. We want to live a righteous life in the last days in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. And wouldn't it be nice to receive that particular crown? The results are found in Second Peter, uh, all three chapters. What do we do with all this information of the last days? The first chapter dealt with virtue. It dealt with the importance of virtue and how to live a life of virtue. And we're called to do that. Chapter 2 and 3 dealt with identification <clears throat> of the false teachers of the last days. How are you going to figure out who they are? What's your standard? And so it basically looks at judgment that is going to come on the world for the, the false teaching it's embraced. And then the restoration. There's going to be a new heavens one day and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And boy, won't that be nice. That would be wonderful. Now the sixth point of this is the reminder. And that is Jude. It is going to take a look at history. We've seen that there, throughout the scripture, frequently you get a Bible walkthrough. Peter's sermon in, uh, recorded in Acts chapter 2 is a walk through the Bible where he gives us an overview. And we take a real quick overview. And, uh, you know, you can do the book of Jude in one Bible class real easy, but miss a whole lot of stuff. So we're not going to do it in one Bible class. I think you know me too well. But <clears throat> it's going to take a look back at history and go all the way back even into prehistory. And then it's going to take us to the conclusion as to what type of people we should be. So that's the book of Jude. Now, the introduction here, you have Christ, the security for mankind. This is an analysis of what the one of the main themes of this book is designed to teach. You, you want to be safe and secure from all alarm? Didn't we used to sing a song about that? Safe and secure from all alarm? And the most frequent command in the, in the Bible is fear not. Fear not, for I am with thee. Being secure and knowing where you're going to spend eternity provides the information we need to be bold and to have courage and fear not. What can man do to me? Well, they can kill me. So what? And that's the attitude Paul had when in Philippians he relayed that to us that, <clears throat> that you know, they want to kill me. And I go, fine, I get to be with the Lord. But he said, then they decided not to kill me. And he goes, fine, now I can continue my ministry with you. So there wasn't anything they could say to him that was going to upset him. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to be because we turn on the news and there's plenty to be upset about. I actually got a good handle on the news over the last week, so God hit me with Internet problems. <clears throat> and that was, uh, couldn't get it to work. I had some important things to do this last week, and I'd be in the middle of a conversation, and it would just quit, okay? And I'll tell you, a couple times I didn't pass the test. Uh, it's just, it's who we are. And so <clears throat> you regroup, you get it back together, and finally yesterday about noon, they got it working again. So I was very, very happy with that. Now, the security for mankind. 
We're going to look first at the author and name of the book. Where did it come from? This is what's called lower criticism. There's a thing called higher criticism that you want to steer clear of because that tries to tear the Bible apart. Out of that came JEDP theory and a lot of things like that. It wants to just rip it apart into shreds and make it null and void. Lower criticism asks basic questions like who wrote it, <laughs> when was it written, who was it to. That's called lower criticism. And that's just saying, hey, we're just trying to figure out is this, uh, is this worthy, is it not worthy, and why. Now, the author and name of the book, <clears throat> the author identifies himself as Jude. But when you look, open it up into the Greek, the first thing you see is he identifies himself as Judas. Oh, where did that come from? That's the Greek. Literally, Judas. Traditionally, English versions have used Jude to distinguish him from the Judas that betrayed Jesus. And you'll find, if you're careful, when you read through, it'll say Judas, not Iscariot. Because there was Judas Iscariot that we all know was the traitor and the betrayer. But there were two other disciples named Judas. And one of Jesus' half-brothers was named Judas. And so instead of putting Judas in there and causing confusion, the translator simply said, simply said Jude. He identifies himself as the brother of James and the bondservant of Jesus Christ. And in the Matthew passages, he's listed as the half-brother of Jesus. Now see, after Jesus was born to Mary a virgin, Mary and Joseph had other kids. Okay, And we've got some of their names. So here's a, here's a family tree. And so he is the uh, actually the half-brother of Jesus. Now it's helpful to note that all Jews, although Judah... Jude or Judas was half-brother of Jesus. He humbly associates himself with James, his full brother. Now, <clears throat> by first calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ, it's evident he wants no one to place stock in his physical connections. So he's, he's not really name-dropping. He's identifying who he is. At the same time, he must identify himself further since Jude was a common name in the first century, more information was needed. And that's why he said brother of James. That's the way people have seen this for centuries. Jude seems to be addressed to all Christians. Okay, where we find a lot of the passages, the epistles, are written to a specific group of people. This one is pretty well addressed to all Christians. It's addressed to those who are called, wrapped in the love of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And later he addresses them as beloved or dear friends. So he knows them, but it seems to be an open letter written to the church. Now the date of writing, <clears throat> the subject matter we'll notice is similar to Second Peter. And it will be a lot of things seem to be overlapped. Some words, if you were to analyze it, occur only in Second Peter and Jude. So there's some, there's some um, uh, vocabulary overlap. One of the chief differences, though, is that Peter warned that there would be false teachers, and Jude says they're here. They've, they've uh, snuck in secretly. Now, and Jude, Second Peter anticipates the problem. Jude says that the problem is underway. So apparently it was written uh, at a time later than Second Peter. If Second Peter's dated around 67, 68 A.D., which is common, uh, 
a lot of times you'll see arguments. It was actually 64, 65, 66 A.D. People like to argue about dates. Um, you know, we do that too, don't we? Don't we think we've grown up and passed all that stuff out? But um, what we're going to be covering in the second session. <laughs> but uh, on what day was Jesus born? That'll open up a bucket of worms faster than you can. See, it's not, I was thinking about this the other day. It's not about the date. You know, how many how many holidays do we have? And where did they come from? People lose sight of Memorial Day. They lose sight of Veterans Day. What do these things really stand for? Fourth of July, well, what's that for? It's just a time to celebrate. They have no idea if we had specified the date then we would have worshipped the date rather than what happened on the date. And he, and he said, all the way through, he said, Jesus, about 30 years old when he started his ministry. And I just love the way that that's inspired and put in there. Because if, if, if it gave any more specific information, then you could, you could hone in on the date. And there's a lot of people say he was born on Sukkoth, which is tabernacles. A lot of people say he's born... December 25th, that's some of the new information that's come out. And a lot of people put it in uh, spring in conjunction with the spring feast. So here's a big argument. But they miss when you argue over that, you miss the fact that he came into the world. <laughs> and that's, that's the important thing. Now, that's the date of writing. <clears throat> the theme and purpose. Jude intended to write about our common salvation. When you read the books, they tell you what, it, what, it, what uh, they're trying to get across. But because of the progress of various heresies and the danger threatening the church, he was compelled instead to encourage believers to defend the faith against false teachings that were secretly being introduced into the churches by the Gnostics. Now, Gnostics, you know, comes from Gnosis, the Greek word, and it means knowledge. Okay? The Gnostics of the first century, which many believe 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were all written to combat Gnosticism, which were written after the book of Jude, but, but it had already uh, crept into the church. Now, <clears throat> they viewed everything material as evil and everything spiritual as good. Okay? That was a Gnostic. Therefore, they cultivated their spiritual lives and allowed their flesh to do anything it wanted to do. With the results that they were guilty of all kinds of lawlessness. In other words, they were saying, well, sins have been taken for on the cross. I got a knowledge of that. See, I'm good on that. Therefore, sin doesn't matter anymore. It's like they read the passages in the scripture. They want to read and throw the other ones out. Well, it's been solved as an issue for eternity without question. But whenever it sneak, whenever it gets in, you find out that that people have a license to sin, and Scripture never gives a license to sin. In fact, we visited a little last night about her sins piled up as high as the heavens. We saw that before the flood came. We saw that before Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that in political Babylon. It's like God's grace covers them. But they reach a certain point. And then he says, that's enough. That's enough. And he brings down judgment upon them. 
Two major purposes can be seen in Jude. One is to condemn the practices of immoral people who are infesting the churches and corrupting believers. Because if, if you go to a church where anything goes, now I'm not talking about legalisms. People add legalisms into these. But things that the scripture says are sins. And anything goes, then uh, you've got a church that's not really representing the image of Christ. The council believers, uh, and the next major purpose is to counsel believers to stand fast. Continue to grow in the faith while contending for the apostolic truth that had been handed down to the church. As Christ seen in the book, quite obviously, he focuses our attention on the believer's security in Christ. And we're getting to its placement. See, it's, <clears throat> it's placed just before the book of Revelation. And the placement of the books are not inspired of God. The books are inspired of God. And then they were organized. And part of the reason they put it before Revelation is so that it would give people a biblical overview before they launched into the book of Revelation. Revelation has no direct quotation <clears throat> from the Old Testament. But guesstimates between 300 and 400 allusions to the Old Testament. So if you don't know the Old Testament and you start to try and understand God by starting in Revelation 1.1, you're lost. You know, that's that's the way people a lot of times they want to read the last chapter of the book before they, and, you know, before they start with the first ones. And you, you start that with Revelation. A lot of times people will start and then they'll come to the pastor and say, I can't read that. It's just too confusing. Well, there's a reason it's too confusing. You need the other 65 books before you get there and a pretty good working knowledge of them. See, John is putting together so many things, and, and I believe it's a summary of the unfulfilled prophecies, things that are yet to be done. And if you want to get some of the meat on them, you've got to go back to the Old Testament where the prophecy was originally, originally given. Jesus focuses, Jude focuses our attention on the believer's security in Christ, on the eternal life that he gives, and on the certainty of his coming again. It is Jesus Christ the Lord that gives us access into the presence of God. Spent last week at the pre-trib conference. Uh, if, if you'd like to go and download some papers, I got some good papers there. Pre-trib, T-R-I-B dot org. And you can go there and open it, open it up and it says download of the papers. I mean, even I found it. So it's, it's pretty easy, pretty easy to find. It's got some good information. People that believe Jesus is coming before the tribulation, often part of the attackers say, well, nobody ever thought about it until the 1800s. And that's patently false. But see, the pre-tribbers didn't have the information, but they have it now. And so now they've gone back, they've researched the church fathers. I'll tell you how they do research. I've got a Bible program right now that's got all of the church fathers on it. The Nicene, anti-Nicene, post-Nicene, the, the Nicaea Council, and it's got all of the writings of the church fathers 
in one program, and I can put a word in <clears throat> to the search engine, and it'll search everywhere that word is found. Okay? Frequently what they do is they put a word in that is common for today, and they do a search, and they get zero results. Okay? But that's not the way you have to search them. You have to look for multiple things. Because, um, you know, did people believe in a burning hell? Was one of them. Some will say, no, they didn't believe in a burning hell back in the first, second century. Oh, they're looking in the wrong, they put burning hell, search, nothing came back. And then they, it, but when you start looking, you start looking for fire, you start looking for eternity, you put in different parameters, and guess what starts showing up? Okay, they're there. The early church fathers were stupid. They were, they were devoted students of the Word of God. They were disciples. That's who they were. And so they wrote a lot of good things. There were some heresies that came out, just like with anything else. But, I mean, they were devoted students of the Word of, the word of God. And when you do that and you go back, you can find people that believe that Jesus would come back, gather his people to himself. Didn't use the word rapture, did it? Gather his people to himself. Oh, before the tribulation. And there's guys wrote a couple of books on it. And he keeps looking. And every time he looks, he makes a list. And then occasionally he presents them at, at the, the pre-trib conference. So it's a beautiful uh, picture. I <clears throat> Andy Woods is chairman. A lot of you know Andy Woods down in Sugarland, Texas. And I asked Andy before the, before the meeting started, I said, I want to know if you guys have a line of succession to uh, carry on this conference after the rapture. <laughs> he got looked at me and I said, I think all the board members should give their board seat to atheists, <laughs> is what I think. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know, you're not going to be here. We all know that, but what are you going to do with this organization? So anyway, it was uh, interesting. Now the outline of the book. The outline of the book, first of all, we have the introduction. Okay, Who wrote it? How do you identify him? Who is it written to? Okay, That's the first two verses. Then you have the purpose of the book stated in verse 3 and 4. Then you have a description and the exposure of the false teachers. And this goes from uh, uh, 1.5 to 1.16. And what we see there, we're going to see... The past judgments, the judgments God has brought on false teachers in the past. We see their present characteristics of what they look like when Judah's writing. And we see their future judgment, which is guaranteed. Then we define the defense of the faith and the instruction to believers. The defense of the faith, the instruction to believers. How, how then should we live? See, what he's doing is he's going to give us a broad overview and then he's going to say, this is, what, this is what you do with it. This is how you deal with it. In the last days, according to 2 Timothy 3, things are going to go from bad to worse. That's what's going to happen. So you, you stand against it and you fight against it. You stand against the immorality. You fight against the immorality, but you realize 
For now, you're fighting a losing battle because our king's not walking around on the earth. Okay? So you don't get discouraged by it. You just keep doing the right thing. There's a couple of ways to get the rapture to come quicker. I think is uh, number one to give the gospel to more people. Because when the bride and body gets filled up, I think we're out of here. I think that's one way to do it. But keep walking a straight line. Keep walking in a righteous life. Because it, the evil just piles up as they attack you. There's a purpose, purpose to it. And the benediction. <clears throat> the benediction. These are neat. Find them in the end of a few books. The end of the book of Hebrews is really cool. The one who brought up the great shepherd of the sheep. Okay, this is, they're really neat little sayings that just kind of close things out in a benediction. Now, the book of Jude. Verse 1. Jude 1. I make Jude 1-1. One, one. Some people just go Jude 1. There's only one chapter, so they leave the first one off of there, but I like to be consistent. So all the other ones have got the chapter, so I just put it 1-1. One, one. And if I see somebody go Jude 2-1, I go, we don't need to go there at all. Now, Jude, as I mentioned, it's Judas. Judas, a bondservant, a doulos. A, a doulos is such a wonderful word. Because this word has more to do with attitude than it does servitude. Big difference. Big, big difference. Because the attitude of a doulos is that you want to serve the master because the master is so great. That's the attitude of a, of a doulos. And he says, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's king of kings, lord of lords. I'll be a servant forevermore. It's a choosing rather than an involuntary servitude. So it's a, it's a big, big difference. He says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And again, it's Jesus Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. It's, uh, <clears throat> Christ is not his last name. I've said that multiple times. It, it means Messiah, the anointed one is what it's about. Jesus, the anointed one. And brother of James. Now this is, Stated in such a manner that this James is well known. Okay? And he's been seen to be the head of the Jerusalem church. Was martyred in 62 AD. He was known as James the Just. So we had another James, didn't we? We had, uh, uh, let's see, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. We had James the Less, and this one was known as James the Just, and was said to be a very righteous man. There are various accounts of his death, but according to Josephus, the high priest, whose name is Ananus ben Ananus, managed to get him stoned to death. So there were false charges brought uh, to him, to the Jews, and the result was that he was stoned to death. To those who are the called. This is an interesting construction. The way it is put here. Uh, has a definite article. But the word kletos. Called. Doesn't occur until after the following phrases. So it's really showing. The significance of the result of the calling. Not emphasizing the calling. 
So the way it is put in the sentence, it's like it's important that he was called. It's talking about quality there rather than emphasizing uh, the calling itself. Word is used ten times, kletos, and uh, means called one. Then it says, beloved in God the Father. Now when I when I go through and I look at the Greek and I see perfect tenses on stuff, I, I get excited because it talks to me about permanence. This is a perfect passive participle of agapao. Now see... <clears throat> Agapetos is the normally the noun translated beloved. Okay, That's what it, normally you see. This is a verb that he's using here. And a perfect passive participle. And it, to me it says having been permanently loved. Okay, Here you are. Result of the calling. It has happened. You have the invitation. You have been invited. You show up and accept the offer of eternal life. Having been permanently loved in God the Father. Now, does anybody else say anything like that? We know Paul wrote about it, right? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Jude, another witness, another author, author under inspiration, says the same thing. And having been kept, this is the word kept, it's another perfect passive participle. Data plural masculine. And it is the word tereo. <clears throat> We've seen this word multiple times. Tereo means not just that you keep it, but you keep it because it's valuable. Unlike some of the stuff in our garages. Some of the stuff we keep, okay, but not because it's valuable stuff. <clears throat> it's just clutter stuff. And we, we get lazy. We don't want to sort it out. I like the Jews with their spring cleanings under the law. It's kind of not a bad idea. Go through and get rid of all that crap that has no earthly use. How many things do you have in your your garage that has a little piece broke on it, and you're going to fix it one of these days? (laughs) Yeah, you know, Mike, you know what I'm talking about. All those paint tools and all those other things and... Here's a sander. It's got the brushes eaten out of it, and I just need to take it apart and put new brushes in. It's going to work again real well. We've all got junk like that. But this word means to keep it because it's valuable. That stuff's not valuable, but keep it. And he says, we are valuable to the Lord. That's what I love that this word selection saying. Having been kept by Jesus Christ. See, it starts off with our security. We're permanently loved, and we're permanently kept. And verse 2 is a prayer he makes for all those who are going to read this letter. So here's a prayer from Jude 2,000 years ago almost. This is a prayer for you. Okay? May mercy. Mercy is Elias. Normal word for mercy. Mercy is whenever you get, when you don't get what you deserve. It's been said that grace is when you get what you don't deserve. It's been said that mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Because a lot of times we say, Lord, I deserve this. <laughs> Give me what I deserve. Don't pray that prayer. Because all of us deserve death. Okay? That's where, that's where we are. So he says, may mercy <clears throat> and peace. Hey, Rene, 
mercy, by the way, is used 27 times in the New Testament. It's not a minor thought. Uh, peace is used 92 times in the New Testament. Irena, that's an absence of hostility. And love, agape, that's used 116 times. And that's just a noun form. Be multiplied to you. Now, arranging the word order, may mercy to you and peace and love be multiplied. That goes with the word order. That's why this is corrected like that. Uh, this word multiplied is the aorist passive optative of plethuno. Now, when you go through and <clears throat> you look at the Greek and you run into an optative, there's only about 70 or 80 of them in the New Testament. So there's not a lot of them. And so usually you see it with meganoida, may it never be. You know, it's a, it's a negative with an optative. And if you're looking at Greek tenses, then you find out the optative is the farthest removed from reality. So it is saying uh, this is a desire from him. He honestly desires it. You can have gone drop back to the subjunctive, and it would not have carried the same power. But instead, he said, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. It is his desire. It is his wish, and that's what he's wanting. So here's a guy that has learned to love one another in a very true sense of the word. Now, Jude is one of Jesus' four half-brothers. Jude is one of Jesus' four half-brothers. Here's two passages. Mark 13, 55, is this not the carpenter's son? The people ask, is this is not his mother called Mary? <laughs> and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And his sisters, are they not with us? We don't have their names. We know there's at least two. There wouldn't have been a plural. So Jesus had six kids. Oh gosh, a family of seven. Isn't that amazing? But it probably more than that. But still, here are their names. Mark 6, 3. Is this not the carpenter's son of Mary and, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Okay. So Jesus is one of, uh, Jude is one of Jesus' four half-brothers. Because their daddy's not the same. Jesus' daddy is the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the other's daddy was Joseph. So he had half-brothers. Now, he now knows, <clears throat> Judas now knows, Jude, the full identity of his older brother, and he wants to serve him. He didn't know it early on. And we have evidence in John chapter 7, verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, you might remember this, this event. Jesus is out and about. He's in Galilee. People are after him and all this. And, and they came to him because they got concerned for their crazy brother that thousands were following and all that. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea. That your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. They're patronizing him, see. For no one does anything in secret when he seeks to be known publicly. They're basically saying, Jesus' traveling salvation show. Go put it on. Okay? Let's get, get the word out. Spread the word out. Let's do all of this. 
And he says, if you believe these things, show yourself to the world. Don't just go to these little villages up here around the Sea of Galilee and all that. Don't do all that. Get down there in the middle of it in Judea. Put you up a tent. Build you a building. Put on a big uh, fundraising campaign. Get yourself known. It says, verse 5, For not even his brothers were believing in him. Took them a while, right? Okay, this is one of the half-brothers now writing this epistle. Did he figure it out finally? He did. And that Simon, remember the adventures of Simon and Cleopas? You know, the road to Emmaus and all that. I think this Simon was another of his half-brothers. So they learned it a little bit at a time. Service is the issue here. <laughs> it's not just association with the family name. A bondservant of Jesus Christ. It, see, he wasn't dropping names. Trying to, oh, yeah, Jesus is my half-brother. Now, how would that have played today? Yeah, Jesus is my half-brother. You need to bow down to me. I mean, that's the way it would have played today. But not, not here. Jude is writing specifically to those who have accepted the call. They've accepted the invitation and they've entered into union with the Father and the Son. Now, Matthew 22, neat little uh, uh, parable Jesus gives. Just Remember what Matthew 23 is? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Okay. Matthew 24, Olivet Discourse, Matthew 22. We're getting real close to the time of the last week. It says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. That's a calling. Okay? First of all, that's a calling. That's what it, it's an invitation. That's what a call is about. Again, he sent out other say, slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, <clears throat> I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat and livestock, they're all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Does that sound remotely like what might happen near the end of the tribulation? Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. And why were they not worthy? They didn't accept the invitation. They didn't accept the invitation. That's why they weren't worthy. It wasn't about what they did. It was about their attitude. <clears throat> Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the, to the wedding feast. <laughs> Go to the Gentiles, in other words. I've invited my family, the Jews. They're not coming. i got a whole lot of food here. It's left over. And those slaves went out into the streets. They gathered together all they found. Evil and good in the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. 
What happens when you become a believer? About 50 things happen to you. You get clothed with power from on high. I mean, all kinds of things. And he said to him, friend, have you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. He snuck in. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Cast him into the outer darkness. Because in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called. If you are chosen. The chosen ones are the ones that accept the invitation. And I think he taught it very clearly. It's taught other places. One of the rules of hermeneutics is don't use a parable to prove a point. So you go outside of the parable and ask, is it taught and proven anywhere else? And it is. Believers entered into union not only with Jesus but with the Father. From 1 Thessalonians 1.1. That's the way he addresses them. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever we become believers, we're in the Father as well as being in the Son. And they share the Father's love that will never change. From Romans 8. (laughs) I love the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asked an important question. Who who is the us? Do you think it might be believers? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a powerful passage. I've been around a long time, been a pastor for a long time, and run into more than one person that says, oh, my sins are just too bad for God to forgive me. And I can tell you they're not. They're not. Because when he went to the cross, he paid for it all. He paid for it all. And so now we're in his love, and he says, I'm not going to let you out of it. That's taught other places too, John 10. Oh, let's see, they're in my hand and nobody's strong enough to take them out of my hand. And by the way, I'm in the Father's hand and try going after him. Yeah, the one that spoke and brought the heavens into existence. If he says you have a promise that he will never remove his love from you, that promise is as safe and secure as anything you'll ever hear anywhere. Their salvation is also preserved by the Son as something valuable in his possession. Their salvation. To accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a permanent family member. It's interesting because it says we're adopted. And the laws of adoption in the ancient world, if you adopted a child, it was irrevocable, unchangeable. You couldn't throw them out. They could actually throw out and remove, disown their natural, their natural sons. But the way it's been explained is that, is that an orphan has already been orphaned once. They've had enough trauma. And if you adopt them, you can't get rid of them. Now, that's, that's pretty powerful. So we're adopted kids. And in that context, it says you're safer than real sons. Actually, it's preserved by the Son. 
as something valuable in his possession. Now, Jude's prayer for believers probably included, when he talked about praying for us, he talked about praying for us for mercy, for peace, and for love. Now, this is not just, I think, to know about it, but it's to see it acted, it's to see it take place in our life. It probably included maybe additional mercy beyond salvation. Because you just look up the word mercy and guess what you find. Because, see, when you become saved, you don't become perfect. You become born again with that option, with that chance to, to grow up and mature. And if we ever think we've got there, I always go to Matthew 5:48, which says, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if you ever think you've got it all down, just look at that verse and you go, I still got room to grow here. Titus 3, 5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds we've done in righteousness. It wasn't our good works that saved us. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's, an invita- that's another invitation, isn't it? Beyond salvation, let us therefore go into the throne of grace. You now, as a believer, are a priest. And as a priest, you're invited to come in. You don't have to wait outside the curtains. You don't have to let somebody else take your stuff in. He says, let us draw. Let us draw close to the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Define mercy. Because that's something he's going he's gonna to grant. Peace during the trials of life. We all face trials of life. We've all had ups and downs. We've all made mistakes. We've, we've all done those things. But First Peter opens up with this. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Now, why are they chosen? Because they accepted the invitation. <laughs> okay. According to the foreknowledge of God. I'd like that. According to the foreknowledge of God. You were chosen. He knew who would believe and who wouldn't believe. He's omniscient. He can't not know. That double negative spells it out. There are things that he knows that he can't not know. He has to know it because he's omniscient. So when he laid out this plan, he knew all the all the great decisions you would make and all the stupid ones too. Not only that, he knew all the possibilities for stupid decisions that we could have made. Okay? And he knew all the possibilities for the good decisions we could have made if we just started with, with a good decision to begin with. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He wants us to have a calmness of soul. You know, I've been saying this thing about if you're having a mental health problem, call 988 or something like that. Uh, Fine and dandy, I guess. 
Why don't we, why don't we call on the Lord? <laughs> you know, why, why don't we do that? Uh, it, I'm, I'm not going to run down that rabbit hole. I've run out of time. Peace during the trials of life. That's what we should have. We go to, to him and say, I'm not at peace with this father. And he goes, I know. Okay. Well, what do I do? I'll show you. Okay. It might as well like we're in one-on-one conversation with him. Whenever we know the word of God, he says, ask for wisdom. He who acts wisdom, ask, let him ask. Because God gives to everyone generously and without reproach. James 1.5. So if you don't know, ask. And then those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Okay, it's time to be patient. Lord, I want wisdom and I want it now. Not a good prayer. <laughs> Lord, I want wisdom. When you decide to give it to me. That's more in line with his will. I've been at this a long time and I keep finding out that he usually doesn't give you the wisdom till the exact moment you need it. And know what to do. So why stew about it? Up until that time. And he's praying for love. <clears throat> to be filled up to all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Four-dimensional. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. That filling, see, by the way, is a process. We don't have it all at once. <laughs> and often our cooperation is needed when other people pray for us. He's praying that we'll have all this. Now we know that he's, he has prayed that we have all this. We know that God wants us to have it. But oftentimes our cooperation. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Because his divine power is granted to, to us. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Ah, if we just grabbed hold of that, wouldn't that get us through a lot of the pressures of life? We've got what we need spiritually. We call on him and pray for the wisdom to know what to use, when to use it, and how to use it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your love and mercy. Thank you for your blessings and your tests. Thank you for your word again that brings comfort to us. We ask that we'll indeed, as we face the trials of life during this coming week, that this, these will come to mind and we will, re, we will remember to call on you in all things. We will give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.